Hi, and welcome to the Women in Foreign Policy podcast. This month, we have a conversation between UK-based Women in Foreign Policy contributor Martha Bowler and Dr. Donna Patterson, Associate Professor of History and Director of Africana Studies at Delaware State University. We're airing this to coincide with the publication of the print interview. You'll notice the topics are complimentary, and I really encourage you to seek out the print interview as well. They'll talk about a range of topics, including COVID, the new U.S. administration, and rising white nationalism globally. Enjoy! I'm currently a professor and department head. Um, I grew up in Texas. For undergrad, I went to a state school, University of Houston, and for graduate school, um, I went to Indiana University, which had a very strong African studies program. Uh, Inspirations? I don't know. I think when I was younger, I didn't aspire to be a professor, if you will, Um, so I thought of other things. One of them was veterinarian, actually, so that's different. Um, So you work in public health. What do you think have been the biggest failures and wins um, in the pandemic response? I mean, I think, well, I think we can't fully blame everyone, I guess, because I think China was not fully forthcoming, of course, Mm -hmm. in the early days. But I think at the same time, most of the, the public health staff and leaders in countries knew that this was coming out. So I guess that's what I should say first, preparation. So that's a part of response, but preparing for it to come. So what do you need? You know, do you have the stuff that you need? Do you have the masks? Do you have the ventilators? Do you have oxygen? You know, and, and, and so we even saw, you know, the dearth of this in urban areas that tend to have better health care wherever you are in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, the U.S., Europe, Africa, the urban areas or better for yeah, the most for part, sure. um, but definitely the rural areas, so because you're already seeing inequities, kind of in rural urban inequities everywhere, mm-hmm. which I think those have been illuminated. I'm digressing a bit, but I think they've really been illuminated during this pandemic. So you didn't have the preparation. Um, and then the response, and, and I'll give the U.S. as an example here, but I don't think that they're the only example. Um, in the U.S., for instance, we knew very early on, <clears throat> we knew by late January, it was evident that uh, COVID was spreading along the west coast of the U.S., uh, Washington State, California, Oregon. People could hardly get tested. They were taking a really long time to get tested. We didn't understand why. That's another failure. I don't know if I want to get into that. That's not on my list. But now we understood, we understood soon after what was happening there. I was so frustrated because I knew just from basic public health, you get in, you test, you contain. Mm-hmm. If you contain that, it probably will stop it from spreading both in that sub-region of the U.S., but potentially through other parts of the country. Yeah. No, didn't happen. No. People in the nursing homes, I remember Washington State, they couldn't even get tested. The people living there, the people working there, they clearly had COVID symptoms. People were dying, and it was taking three or four weeks to even get them tested. By the time you get them tested, some of them, well, some of them were, you know, being declared positive, COVID-19 positive, you know, post-mortem, mm-hmm. effectively. Yeah. I mean, literally. Yeah. Um, so that, that... Um, and then, you know, we saw New York, which was, you know, Huge. Yeah. by marriage. Uh, and, and so once they really started responding, Cuomo really, you know, hit it hard. But by then it had really, you know, it was really big. Um, and they even had some early contact tracing with New York. But I guess it had already taken root in a lot of places, but they didn't have the other things that they needed. Mm-hmm. So some of that is because locally, statewide, they didn't prepare as much as they should. But I think one of the big pieces in the U.S., and I don't want to get into this too much, was the lack of kind of federal state coordination. There should have been a more yeah. federal 
coordinated response from the beginning. And I was screaming at for months. And sometimes journalists were printing it, sometimes they wouldn't. Mm -hmm. But it was evident. But then you see other countries that did respond quickly. Mm -hmm. um, I think we saw a lot of the failures in the West. Yeah. And I think people didn't expect to see the failures in the West. But I think, too, just given what I do and how people often ignore, like, you know, what does this mean if this is happening somewhere else and how does it impact the West? I think the West felt that it was insulated. And we saw what happened in Europe. We saw what happened in Italy. We saw what happened in the UK, what happened in Germany. And in some cases, it's still happening. Yeah. You know, um, you know, because it's kind of ebbing and flowing. But now with the, with, you know, quote, the UK variant, you know, what that means and, and what's happening with that and overflows. Of, of people not having hospital space and, and these sorts of things. Um, and so that was our big thing. But what we saw in other parts of the world, parts of the Pacific, they've had a, a brilliant response. Yeah. Australia, New Zealand. Yeah. Um, if you look around Asia, you look at Singapore, and um, I think Taiwan's done pretty good. Hong Kong, I mean, they have numbers, but I mean, compared to what we had, yeah. I mean, you know, even when I spoke to a journalist from South China Morning Post and I was saying, and she's like, oh, well, we have, but I'm like, you have like 50 cases or something, you know? Yeah. And I mean, look at what we have. <laughs> it's like nothing yeah. compared to what we have. Um, and so what that response, and even China, I mean, you know, it may be unpopular to say, but China, once China decided China was responding, I mean, what they did in the Hubei province in Wuhan was remarkable. Yeah. And I guess in some ways only what China can do for other sorts of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in a lot of ways, despite China denying it, once it really took hold, they bought the world some time. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the world, a lot of the world, did not use those extra weeks and days that they had to prepare in the ways that they could have. Yeah. Now, there were some brighter spots in Europe. I think the, some of the Scandinavian countries did well. Iceland's done quite well, uh, for instance. But when you look at kind of the powerhouses in Europe, not yeah. so much. Yeah. Not so much. I mean, there was a break. You had something we didn't have in the U.S. Is you had that break probably from like late spring until about yeah. September, that you could have a seemingly, quote, normal, more pre-pandemic sort of life. Yeah. We've never really had that in the U.S. There are people who do it, of course, which mm -hmm. is why it looks like it looks now, but you shouldn't do it. And mm -hmm. we've never really suppressed the numbers enough throughout the nation, because even if they're suppressed in one part, they're really surging yeah. in another part. It's been... Um, yeah, no, that's... It's been unimaginable. It's been terribly frustrating uh, for me to watch it. And yeah. even early on, just seeing little things that we could do. And now just like, it just, you know, just looking at a train wreck happening. And, mm -hmm. um, and you know, and I, and I was telling people, you know, even late last year, October, November, you know, that I thought the Biden administration would have a better response. I think he's listened to the experts in a way that Trump wasn't. And he's also put some good people around him. Now, I don't agree with everybody who's on all the advice that, or all the advice that they give him, but overall, it's much more sound advice. Mm -hmm. And I said, he didn't really do something. And we already see he's been president, I think yesterday was his 16th day, not even 20 days, not even three weeks, and what he's tried to do. So I knew he was going to dive in. The thing is, what I also knew is it was going to take him months to mm -hmm. be able to even try to get it on track because. Yeah. How per, of how pervasive the spread is in the U.S. I completely and uh, everything else that came with that. Yeah. Also, I think another 
seemingly bright spot has been, uh, I want to say two really quickly, has been um, what we've seen on the African continent. Mm -hmm. We're starting something a little bit more now in terms of the second wave. But overall, the continent has fared, I think, much better than a lot of people predicted that it might. Where we've seen the highest rates of death and um, transmission have been in um, the more developed countries. So this, we've seen this whole kind of trend, you know, throughout the world. What does this mean? Um, you know, so South Africa, Egypt, Egypt was probably the first one to really have it bad. And then South Africa and Morocco had a, a kind of a bad point, but Morocco, because of their pharmaceutical industry and everything, has really scaled up their own manufacturing and responded remarkably there. But um, overall, I mean, Senegal now, I think Senegal's had maybe 500 and something deaths through oh, the course wow. of this thing. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, yeah. And I think, <laughs> I think, and I think some of that is people work with a little mm-hmm. frequently, but also people listen. Yeah. They listen to their, their professionals and they listen to our government officials. And I think the government officials, officials have stepped up in this case to a large degree. You have some outliers there for mm-hmm. sure. The leader of Madagascar, who was peddling his natural remedy for a minute for a long time, and the numbers we saw that it didn't work, and I think they scaled back. And some of the things that were happening in um, Tanzania, uh, but overall, I think that they've been listening to the science and responding well, and being able to make masks and things available, and people adhering to it in ways that they're not always adhering to it in countries where we see that it's spreading uh, much more rapidly. In Ethiopia, you'll be fine if you're not wearing a mask. And I don't think they do that everywhere, but in Addis, I mean, people wearing masks everywhere. Um, the rural areas, maybe not so much. And one of the things that I found very interesting too, I remember sometime in the spring, they were sending people who were stationed in African countries, like, uh, I don't know if they were sending any non-essential kind of workers from embassies, but they were sending people who had Fulbrights and Peace Corps, uh, U.S. citizens back to the U.S. And I was thinking, you should probably stay where you are, because I was looking at the response here. And I remember them coming from different countries, and I'll, I'll use Senegal as one of those examples, and which was, I mean, Senegal hardly even had any cases, I think, when they were sending them back. And, um, but even masks, you could get them everywhere. Mm-hmm. And there were people in Senegal sending masks to people in the U.S. As we saw, people yeah. were doing, you know, in China That's and some great. other sorts yeah. of things. They were sending them because they had extra mm-hmm. and we didn't even, couldn't even get basic things. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, just another example. So now more specifically, so data clearly shows that women and especially black women are distri- discriminated against in healthcare. Um, this has obviously been worsened by the pandemic. What changes would you have liked to see which could have started to chip away at this cycle of inequity? Um, yeah. Between. That's a really big question. Yeah. <laughs> I write down anything because I was like, how do I approach this? You can approach this in so many ways. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think what you're saying is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've talked about this a bit too. One of the early pieces that I was interviewed in, it talked about kind of the intersection with COVID and black women and black women's health and health inequities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I and I quoted this idea of Serena Williams and I'll just bring it back. I don't remember what I said exactly, but you, <laughs> I, it was, I can send it to you, you can go look at it. Okay, but in that piece, I talked about Serena when she was having her baby 
Mm-hmm. And how she had the blood clots. And so she kept saying, I have a blood clot. The medical professor like, oh, you're not having a blood clot. She's like, no, I absolutely have. And I've had blood clots before, and I know what's happening to my body. And so I, you know, I argued this idea of even Serena Williams, someone with that amount of wealth, uh, fame, you know, the medical mm-hmm. doctors weren't listening to her because she was a black woman. Uh, and, and I'm going to even dive into that piece a little bit more. That piece started and, and was kind of, uh, used uh, Zoe Mungin mm-hmm. as the premise of the piece. And Zoe Mungin um, was a teacher, school teacher in Brooklyn. She got COVID fairly early in New mm-hmm. York. Uh, she went to the hospital three times. It was the third time that she went when she was near death that they actually admitted her. Because okay. they kept saying, oh, you don't have COVID or you have asthma. We think you're just nervous and you're just stressed. I'm going to tell you something even more. Zoe Mungin was my student. Okay. She was my student at Wellesley College. I used to teach at Wellesley College before I came here. When the, when the journalist came to me about that and she sent me a link to her, I just like, I already knew about Zoe, but it just hit me. I was like, am I being trolled? What is happening? You know, because I actually knew Zoe, which I told her, we talked a lot about that, but I said, I don't want personal stuff in this piece. Mm -hmm. And so she used the Serena thing. And so I knew her. She was my student. I remembered her. Um, And and so, and I knew very early when she went to the hospital because Wellesley is a very tight-knit group of women. Mm -hmm. And so I knew within... I don't know, a day or two of her going into the hospital that she was in the hospital. Um, and I remember also, I'll say this now because I probably could have said it at the time, but when I knew that she not only was in the hospital but was immediately put on a ventilator, I mean, it just, it hit me. Mm-hmm. And this was March 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, wow. And I just knew, I knew that that wasn't good. Mm-hmm. Um and she ended up being on the ventilator something like five or six weeks before she died. Oh, my gosh. She was 30 years old. And so, you know, this mm-hmm. idea of early on, and they're saying older people and this sort of thing, 30 years old, school teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and now she probably would not have died because I think they've made some medical advances. And two, she was just at the height when, you know, the medical professionals were overextended. You had too many patients, not enough staff. And just so, yeah. But at any rate, um, I think both Zoe and Serena mm-hmm. are kind of good examples of this, yeah. if you will. Like, and an educated black lady went to Wellesley, has a master's degree in literature, but they're not listening to her. One, because of the neighborhood she lives in. And then two, because she's a black woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what does that mean when you have, you know, and I shouldn't say that you should marry, you know, better care because of your education or your, or your class status, but, if, if, but, but it also shows that if you're having this level of inequity from p- people who potentially have lots of money like Sabrina and lots of education like Zoe, what does it mean for somebody who has neither of those things? How much more difficult is, is it for them to get the things that they need yeah. uh, in healthcare? Yeah. And so it's a major issue. We could talk about this forever, and we're not. Yeah. But what we'll say is, I think um, it has historically been a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, black and brown women in particular in this country, especially, but even globally. I think one thing is, I think COVID in some ways has helped illuminate these inequities mm-hmm. and have okay. people talking about them in ways 
that they really weren't talking about them. Now you have lay people talking about these things. And so I think that has been remarkable. And so I think that's going to help. Hopefully this will stay in people's head long term. But I think the way that people are trying to push racial disparities into the conversations in different ways, both originally like who's treated, who's treated, who's tested, and now who's getting the vaccine, because that's a whole nother issue. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing now in some communities that are predominantly communities of black and brown people, you know, parts of Brooklyn, parts of Harlem, uh, parts of the DMV, and other places um, that I'm seeing these reports and reading articles um, where, you know, you have these, these places where you don't really have many white people who live, and in some cases, you know, you're probably gonna have some, but a minority, um, that they're the ones who are mostly getting the vaccine, for instance, mm-hmm. in these communities that are not predominantly white communities, for instance. And so even there, you're seeing some disparity, even in the neighborhoods where people live. And then there's this whole call about, you know, black and brown people and indigenous people are dying more, which is true. But why are they not getting the same access to the vaccine and they didn't get the access they needed to the testing and in some cases the care. And so we keep seeing this thing and I'm glad that people keep putting it out. So I'm glad it's on people's radar. And mm-hmm. there's uh, what also is on people's radar is kind of diversity uh, training and medical school and in other places, just corporations and other things. So, cause both we're seeing the pandemic, but we're also seeing, you know, this racial, rec- racial reckoning that we've been seeing since I guess spring, late spring or so 2020. So with that call, you know, the combination of that, mm-hmm. people are thinking about these things in different ways. Now, my thing is just how long will this last? Yeah. You know, it'll just be a trend, you know, and then the pandemic ends and people go back to, you know, seemingly as close to a pre-pandemic life as they can have. And, you know, they won't remember these things. I mean, you want to be hopeful, but I think seeing the reality is probably it will not change policies in the ways that we'd like it to. Yeah. Um, so then a bit about the election, a bit more. Uh, so from your perspective as chair of the Department of History, Political Science and Philosophy, um, what would you like to see happen in the Biden-Harris mandate to accompany the increase in diversity of Congress and to improve like disadvantages that black people face in the US? Okay, I think this one's, this one's kind of hard because... Um, I think, you know, Joe Biden has made these preliminary statements about, you know, trying to, I don't know if diversify was the word, but trying to create greater racial equity mm-hmm. yeah. know, in all of the government cabinets. Yeah. I think it remains to be seen how that, what that looks like. I think, you know, he's definitely had one of the more, most diverse, if not the, the most diverse cabinets in terms of cabinet members and people in the White House than we've seen maybe ever, or one of the highest ones in terms of the numbers, because he's still putting people in offices, Mm -hmm. so we don't know those final numbers. So, yay. But I think the bigger issue is just because you're putting people of color in positions doesn't mean that your policies are uh, helping the masses of of citizens. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's a bigger thing. What will your policy look like? Mm -hmm. And so it's really early, so I'm more interested in the policy pieces. Yeah. You know, what is, you know, health inequities look like? Will we only talk about it COVID? You know, are you going to put these things in place? You know, how, what kind of, um, what can you do? I mean, you can't force a doctor to really think about these things. Uh, you know, you can't, um, you know, and so those, those sorts of things, you know, 
you have to find a way of changing the culture and that's going to take time be it in the medical field be it in the u.s government be it wherever it is but also what the biden harris administration have going on is this this kind of I don't know if I want to call it a resurgence of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was there, but this kind of open, more open, more emboldened kind of white supremacy in this country that we probably, we see it, but not seeing it so openly, probably, I don't know, since, you know, a few decades back, so, so openly. Uh, and so then, you know, so you have a lot of people who, perhaps work in the medical field or perhaps work in the U.S. government or local government who mm-hmm. who don't care and are not going to adhere to any policy changes. Um, I mean, because if we look at who, uh, you know, the kind of the makeup of people who came to the Capitol, I think there's this presumption that, you know, a lot of uh, Trump supporters or, or, or working class, and, and, and in a lot of cases that's true, but a lot of them are not. We saw medical doctors and we saw people who came on private planes uh, to, to go, quote, storm the Capitol. You know, this is this is entrenched in different layers of the U.S. society. So he has a lot. He's mm-hmm. going to have a lot to encounter and a lot, you know, kind of both within the government and healthcare, but also just in the U.S. Yeah. And, you know, we're seeing this rise of kind of, I guess, a, probably even a better way of describing this white nationalism. You know, we're seeing it globally. We're not just seeing it here. We're seeing it in Europe. Um, you know, I'm looking at the French re- elections right now. I mean, Marine Le Pen probably has her best chance that she's ever had. Yeah. I mean, you know, and so in things we're seeing in Germany. Yeah. So it's, it's not just here at Asylum. Yeah. And so, you know, so really thinking about what these issues, I guess, look like in his cabinet and Congress, uh, but, but moving beyond just putting people there, but really pushing for policy and trying to find a consensus. And I think it's going to be really hard because even when you look at the Congress, we see already, you know, if you can't even agree on funding people and COVID-19 response, how are people going to agree on making these big sorts of changes in diversity and equity? I'm not so optimistic, I, I have to say. Other things that I hope he will do is one thing that I think would help to some degree is to, is to maybe have, and he has some of that, but it's also a lot of recycling of people who are already there or who had been there before. More new blood, uh, more new networks of people who are working in his White House in particular, because he, he can't really control Congress that much. I mean, yeah. he can go and campaign or whatever, but you can't control that as much as you can control your White House mm-hmm. uh, and your advisors. Uh, so thinking about people with different ideas, I think, you know, neither he or Kamala Harris uh, graduated from an Ivy League school. So yeah. that, and they're our first, definitely he's our first, or one of our few presidents, and or maybe our, the first. And then she is, um, you know, maybe some of the vice president maybe had a little more diversity, but to have the both of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's a big deal. But a lot of people around them are still Ivy Leaguers. You know, maybe thinking about more people from public schools, maybe even community college schools, uh, HBCUs, which she graduated from, maybe more of that. So having different viewpoints, different type of people in government could maybe help in terms of just discussions. Uh, But also, uh, I think thinking about the HBCUs more, uh, the historically black colleges and universities, which we're seeing some resurgence of that more 
probably with the corporations. And I think a lot of that's going off of some of the events that we've seen in 2020. Um, and, and the White House working with them more, maybe bringing in more people and more and new initiatives in these places in terms of really shoring a lot of them up uh, financially and, and, um, and partnering with them more. Cool. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so how can how could female inclusion at the decision-making level um, could address security issues in the U.S.? I think I think this different term we're seeing in white nationalism mm-hmm. because you know these kind of white nationalist groups they were always there. I mean, if you look historically, you have the Ku Klux Klan, of course, that mm-hmm. still exists, yeah. and the Knights of the White Camellia and and, and all of these organizations that caused a lot of ha- havoc and um, did a lot of violence things, mm-hmm. um, particularly in the U.S. South, but also in other pockets, particularly the mid- the U.S. South and the Midwest the most. So I think that's one of the major sec- security issues we're seeing in the U.S., probably that and, and the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So both global health security or, or in, in kind of global health, public health, depending on how you want to frame it within the U.S. borders um, and, and and the white nationalism. Because I think in, in a lot of ways that um, these groups are always dangerous. You just have the new groups, you know, the Proud Boys and I can't even, I don't even, I can't think of all the names mm-hmm. off the top of my head. So some that are more organized and some just have certain beliefs. And then you have the QAnon, of course, which is getting a lot of attention. I've been saying it gets some yeah, global attention. And I think they have a spinoff groups in Germany mm-hmm. now. Um, and so I think those are two of our biggest um, security issues yeah. in the U.S. And you can tie the latter to some degree to kind of gun violence, which was already an issue, and, and then particularly with those two being inter- intertwined um, in some way. And I mean, it's tricky in terms of women. I don't know. It's hard to say women, if mm-hmm. a woman in leadership can necessarily solve that or solve that or women alone. I think you need a, a group of people. And frankly, I think it's... It, Particularly, I think the pandemic will, you know, we're starting to see, you know, some movement and that will come together. Uh, gun violence. I think you might see women having a, taking a greater role in gun violence because mm-hmm. we already see that trend to some degree. Both gun violence and um, prison reform and these sorts of things. I mean, we've seen this with some women in the Congress now. And I think women are mobilized in a lot of ways because if you look at a lot of kind of the, the local organizations and the lobbyist groups, a lot of those are women who are against gun violence. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where we may see women the most. Yeah. You know, in terms of kind of the threat of white nationalist groups, um, you have women who are speaking out, but I think that's just going to take so many layers of response. Yeah. I, and, you know, from a policy point of view, I wouldn't want to be the person doing that policy, I have yeah. to say. <laughs> and I think it's interesting, though, I think how it's shifted. Um, in terms of how the, the the conversations have shifted, because people of color, Muslim people, you know, have long seen the threat mm-hmm. yeah. of, of people that are in these groups or who feel aligned in some ways, even if they're not necessarily in the groups, uh, you know, kind of bodily harm, if you will, or, you know, maybe um, access to labor and those sorts of things, or even just, you know, randomly 
someone randomly randomly saying a racial epithet as you're in a store going down the street or, or whatever. So I think, you know, those of us who are black and brown, Muslim, uh, we know this. And, and Asians, too, to a lesser degree, but it still happens, mm -hmm. too. Happening more, I think, in the early parts of the pandemic and when they would call it the China virus and all this stuff. Um, but so, so I think in that way, I don't know. Um, women can have input, but I can't say that they can do it all alone, mm -hmm. all alone, if you will. Yeah. Um, this I, I've just kind of thought of this question. I don't know if you know much about it, but I've seen that there's a lot of links between anti-abortion women um, and the attacks on the capital, do you think that having more women at the decision-making level can, like, kind of attenuate this, or is it just, like, the policy I on abortion? I issue is another one of our very contentious issues. Yeah. So I think if you have women kind of the pro-choice, pro-life, that divide there, that I think that's another divide that's really hard to bridge. So yeah. I can't say that it will. Yeah. frankly, that because I think sense. we've, you know, seen in other ways. Um, and there was something else I thought of, but I can't remember what it was. And so, so no, I don't think that that's necessarily, you know, having women um, in those positions change positions, I guess. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Um, and I'm not optimistic. Yeah. That's what else. <laughs> yeah. the, about those areas. Um, because and, and I have to say this because I think I think that's going to be Biden's one of his biggest um, challenges is how to navigate this because mm -hmm. I think we've become so it's not just the political divide but I think when you have these other kind of non-political things that have become politicized yeah and how they're all wrapped together and I mean when you look at QAnon I mean QAnon is almost kind of pseudo-religious in some ways, mm -hmm. if you really get there and look at it. Yeah. And um, it's going to be a lot. I mean, that's going to take time. I think one of the problems that we've seen in this country is that people largely ignored these things. We mm -hmm. knew that these groups, you had new groups forming, and there were these, you know, kind of rise in this movement probably for, what, two decades or so? But I don't think people... I mean, New America, where I've had a fellowship, has done some work on that. Um, and some other groups, uh, but largely, I would say, um, a lot of people ignored it. A lot of leaders ignored it, a lot of the media ignored it, or in some ways tried to really humanize and justify people. I mean, even if you look at Charlottesville, you saw the videos and then you'd see like profiles of, you know, some of the people who were out there, you know, doing these violence and saying these things. Um, and so trying to really humanize them in ways even though they were causing violence, either directly or indirectly to people, when you see the people that maybe the victims being presented in more negative ways. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a lot. And I think the only reason that the U.S. is really starting to think about it more, and you're seeing kind of the government think about it more, but also the media largely is because of what happened on January 6th. Mm -hmm. And when people who aren't necessarily usually threatened by these groups are now threatened by these groups. Yeah. So I think that's that 
and I, and that's why we're having these conversations. So, so I think they will try to do something, but I, I think it's going to be really an uphill battle because it's been ignored for so long. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Martha and Dr. Patterson for this interview. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you have any feedback, we'd love to hear it. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on whatever app you use. This helps other people find us. It is one of the most helpful things you can do for the podcast. While you're at it, please subscribe to the Women in Foreign Policy newsletter available on our website, womeninforeignpolicy.org. You can also follow the organization's Twitter at Women in FP. And if the work we're doing means a lot to you, please consider supporting us financially via PayPal at Lucy Goulet, that's G-O-U-L-E-T, or on Patreon at Women in Foreign Policy. We are an all-volunteer team, so that means your support goes even further. We love the work we do, and we absolutely couldn't do it without listeners like you. Thank you all so much, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye.